Thanks for tuning in to Dream City Omaha, where we're all about helping each other discover Christ, recover identity, and uncover purpose. We hope this message impacts your life, and be sure to like and subscribe for more. Good morning, everybody. I wasn't in the room, but I didn't, I didn't fail to hear what Kevin had to say. It's a big day. Um, 49ers, many of you know if you've been here, uh, I'm a, a 49ers fan, and one of my favorite things to do is talk trash to Cowboys fans, just because that's what I do. Uh, and, and today, the 49ers play the Cowboys in the playoffs, and my son is down here on the front row with his Cowboys hat and Cowboys jersey. He even brought his Cowboys bag. He's probably got Cowboys socks on. You know, Pastor Kevin talked about, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this morning I woke up and, and really the parable that was on my heart was the parable of the lost son. <laughs> the prodigal son who, who wandered away from his father's home. But then one of my favorite verses in all of Luke 15 is that the, the son came to his senses, right? That's what the Bible says, that when he came to his senses, he returned to his father's home. And I'm just praying that somehow God would use today as a, a moment to bring Jace to his senses, right, son? No. <laughs> we were talking last night and Angel says, listen, you guys got to figure something out because like her empathy for the last week is like on overdrive. And so Jace is actually going to his cousin's house to, to watch the game because <laughs> there's wisdom in that. So pray for, pray for us today. It's going to be good. It's going to be fun. Um, what's that? 49ers. 49ers. That's right. Here we go. All right. So today we're going to, we're going to get into the, the book of Job. We're going to cover Job chapter one through Job chapter 42. It's going to be a lot. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try my best to give you the book of Job in the next 40 minutes or so. We'll see how we do. Uh, if we, if we go into lunch and second service, people start showing up, then we'll just include them in the conversation as well. Those of you watching us online, you might want to get your coffee and start thinking about lunch too. <laughs> but, uh, but before we do, Converge is, is coming up this weekend. If you haven't registered, would encourage you to do so. And, and really the, the purpose behind that is for the breakouts. We have breakouts, uh, three sessions of breakouts on Saturday morning. We've got breakouts on on how do, we, how do we parent, how do we lead our kids, how do we shepherd our kids in a digital age with so much going on and, and a lot of the news coming out lately, the, the, the impact that social media and technology is having on the next generation, how do we as parents shepherd them and shepherd their hearts through that time? We'll have, have breakouts on how to study the Bible, we'll have breakouts on worship. Pastor Doby's gonna teach a breakout on generational family planning and, and how that it's, it's not enough just to think one generation or two generations, but, but really beginning to think, where do I want my family to be 100 years from now or 150 years from now, should the Lord tarry? And, and beginning to think that way. And, and we're going through some of that stuff as a family uh, ourselves, but just want to encourage you. There's, there's three different sessions. Just when you register, let us know what session you're interested in attending so we know kind of which ones are going to be attended more heavily, and we can put those ones in, in rooms with a larger capacity. So would encourage you today or tomorrow, sometime early this week, get on the, the website or get on the app and, and register for Converge. Friday night, Alan Griffin's going to be with us. You're not going to want to miss that. He's, he's incredibly anointed, a powerful communicator, stinking hilarious. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. You're going to be convicted. It's going to be uh, a wonderful time. So I would encourage you to come out Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday. Job chapter 1, we're going to get into to Joe. We've been reading the Bible chronologically this year. For those of you that maybe are new or you're checking us out online for the first time, as a church, what we've decided to do this year is read through the Bible chronologically together. And then when we gather corporately on Sundays, we'll be talking about what we've read. So we've, we've talked up to this point about you know, Genesis chapters 1 through Genesis chapters 11 or 12. And, and we've looked at the story of creation, the fall of man leading to the flood and the wickedness on the earth and God's judgment poured out upon the earth, the covenant made with Noah. And now we get to the book of Job is kind of thrown in there chronologically. And sometimes the question is, well, why is Job chronologically before Abraham. How do we know what's going on? There's some things in the text that give us clues, and we're not going to take a lot of time here, but, 
for one, we, we see the length of Job's life. We're not told exactly how long he lives, but at the end, it says that in the second half of his life, he was more blessed and lived another 140 years. So if you consider that the second half, he lived somewhere 250, 300 years, we don't really know. But the length of life kind of puts him before Abraham. The fact that he, his wealth is measured in livestock puts him before Abraham. The, the fact that he offers a sacrifice for his kids. We know it was before the Mosaic law because after that only the priests could offer sacrifices. And he leaves an inheritance to his daughter, which was not a common practice during those times. So, so it was a, an ancient time. It was... It was it was an early time, and so chronologically, scholars figure he probably lived sometime between, between the flood and between Abraham. So that's why we find it where we find it in Scripture. And, and the book of Job is, is a long book. It's, it's a hard book. How many of you guys kind of had a hard time getting through all of it? You can be honest. It's okay. I'm right there with you. Like you get into it, and by about chapter 17, 18, 19, you're like, okay, I feel like I've heard this. I feel like you guys are repeating yourselves now. And then like you hit the, draw, the, the, the arrow in your Bible app to see that you're not even halfway through the book. And it's like, I still have 23 more chapters of this. What is going to happen? What is going on? And so it's a long book. It's a, it's a hard book, but... We have to understand that the book of Job and the way it is written and its view, not just within the religious context, but even in the literary context and even in, in academia, the book of Job is widely regarded as one of the ancient literary masterpieces. The way that it is structured, the way that it is written, the way that it is arranged, the book of Job is an incredible book. And when you get... When you get past even the literary aspect of it and you start looking at the, the principles and the ideas and the concepts and the arguments and what is being discussed in the book of Job, there is so much theological truth and theological weight to it that even me, I've read through it and reading through it now, had a conversation with my dad the other day and it was like, hey, so what do you think about this? And he's like, I don't know. That's a good question. And I said, well, if you get some revelation around that, why don't you let me know? And he goes, okay, just don't expect it by this weekend. And I said, I'm not even expecting it in the next 15 years. And I think God's word should do that to us. There should be those things in God's word that, that we'll never fully understand. We're never going to know it all. We'll never get to a point where it's like, oh yeah, I know everything. And if you do think that... <laughs> Here is the altar you can come and repent of your, of your pride because none of us will. And so there's, there's so much theological weight that once you begin to unpack the layers of it, there's just so stinking much in it. So again, my, my, my challenge today is to give it to you uh, in a bite-sized piece, in a way that you can digest, in a way that... that encourages you to, and challenges you to, to continue searching scriptures for yourself, but then asking the big question, like, why, why is this here? If all of God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men for our benefit to point us to Christ, why is the book of Job in scripture? And so that's kind of where we're, we're going today. Um, I want to, to talk real quickly about the structure of Job, just to give you an idea. Job is a fascinating book. I said it earlier, but, but Job is what is referred to in, in literature, literature as a chiasmus, which is a fancy way of saying that the end mirrors the beginning. So like the, the phrase, uh, you, can either, you can either live to eat or you can eat to live. You see that it, it leads to a point and then the second half kind of mirrors in a way the concepts or the words or the ideas that were presented in the first half, whether it's the same or contrary to the beginning. But the book of Job is, is also one of these kind of mirroring objects of itself. It kind of leads to a point and then it works backwards from a point that if you look at it, you'll see the beginning and the end and the end and the beginning. And so, so what's interesting is we only have like three chapters of Job that are written in narrative form. 
that are written in prose, that are written in normal, everyday, conversational language. That's chapters 1 and 2, and then chapter 42. And everything in between is poetry. Everything in between is, is written as, as a poem. The speeches, we read them as speeches. But the way that they are written, they are written as poems. So we have the the prologue in chapters 1 and 2. That leads us to Job's complaint in chapter 3. Then we have three cycles of speeches for 23 chapters. That's when Eliphaz speaks, and then Job speaks. And then Bildad speaks, Job speaks. And then Zophar speaks, not to be confused with the talking head in the machine from Big Zoltar. That's a different, that's not right. But, But Zophar speaks, and then Job speaks. And that's one cycle, and we have three cycles of these speeches. And during these cycles, I read it kind of like a, a theological rap battle. Like that's just how it played out in my head. Like there was a beat that dropped, Job got up, he rapped a verse and then he sat down. And then the DJ turned another beat on and then Eliphaz got up and he rapped a verse. And then that's just how, like in my mind, it was like this eight mile scene. So we have these three cycles of speeches that leads us to a poem right in the middle of the book, chapter 28. It's a poem about wisdom. And in my Bible and in your Bible, it attributes this poem to Job speaking. But what's interesting, and and most people don't think that it was actually Job's, it it should be credited to Job because it's this this random one-off poem right in the middle of the book because up until that point and then after that point, it always leads with, and then Job said, and then Eliphaz said, and then Job said. But we get to chapter 28 and there's no introduction of who's talking. The the theme changes, the concept changes, the content changes. And it's this poem about wisdom. Where can wisdom be found? Who can can find it? Can you you mine it? Can you search for it? Can you dig it up? Can you you produce it? Can you manufacture it? No, no, humans can't produce wisdom. It's only found in God. And it gets to the end and it says that the, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And turning from wickedness is true understanding. So we have this poem in the middle that talks to us about wisdom. And then after that, we have three speeches. So we start to see we're working backwards. We had three cycles of speeches. Now we get three speeches. Job speaks, and then Elihu speaks, and then God speaks. And after these three speeches, we see Job's repentance. So it starts with Job being righteous and blameless, being tested, Job complaining, speeches, wisdom, speeches. Now Job is repenting. And we'll get to that, but, but it leads to Job's repentance. And then finally, we conclude this story with the epilogue, again, in narrative form that tells us that God blessed Job twice as much at the end of his life than in the beginning, that he restored to him his his children, he gave him 10 more children. He gave him double the livestock that he, he had. And so Job was blessed more in the latter half than he was in the former. And so, so there's so much here, but when we, when we look at the structure of Job, we begin to see, and even within this, like we're introduced to Job and the, the story starts with Job being righteous and blessed. And then the next thing we see is his friends come to comfort him. At the end, it ends with Job being righteous and blessed. What happened right before that? Job, instead of his friends comforting him, he supports and prays for his friends to receive comfort. So there's this leading to and then this working back. And the way that it is arranged is actually really beautiful. And I'm not a, a big poetry guy, but when you, when you look at it that way, then it's not just like, why do I have to, what is going on? And, and you, begin to, you begin to see it in, in a new light. So as we, as we look at the scripture, Job chapter one, beginning in verse one, here's, here's how the story starts. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of us. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God, he stayed away from evil. He has seven sons and three daughters. Job is here and he's this righteous man. He, he, he has 10 kids, but he owns all this livestock. He owns like 7,000. Go and put that next verse up there. He owns 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job was righteous. He was blameless. Does that mean that Job was without sin and Job didn't sin? No. Doesn't mean that. But he was in right relationship with God. 
He was blameless in the eyes of the Lord. And, and not only was he righteous and blameless, he was ridiculously and incredibly blessed. And in those days, if you were blessed, you were good. And if something bad happened, that means that you did something wrong. That's why his friends have the understanding and the perception that they do when they, when they come to present their cases. And so, so here we're introduced to this man. He's this, he's this good man. In fact, his, his kids, it says that they would, they would throw parties and they would, they would hang out with one another. And, and after they had their parties, Job would offer sacrifices for his kids just in case. Maybe they sinned in their hearts against God. In case they did something or thought something that maybe they didn't even intend to do, God, here's, here's kind of an in-case offering. That's the, the level of piety that, that Job has. And the Bible tells us that, that one day there's this, this scene in heaven. And one day the, the sons of God or the, the, the members of the court present themselves to the Lord. Verse 6, we see it in Job chapter 1. The members of the heavenly court, last week I told you it's the same in Hebrew, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, the same ones, not the same group, but the same title given as in Genesis chapter 6. But they came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Now here, six verses in, here leads us to our very first, like, what? Right? Like, what? What is happening? How, how did Satan sneak in? Did he, did he know underground tunnel? Like, did he have some back way? Did he pay off the guard at the gate? Like, we don't, how does Satan present himself before God without God knowing it? Now, there's, there's a couple of different things to understand. There are some that read Job as a historic book, as a historical Account. There are some that read Job simply as a, a parable, a story given to us to reveal part of God's character and the, the condition of humanity. I would say there's not one right way or one wrong way to read the book. But again, as with anything, regardless of how it was written or the intent, what is this teaching us about God and what is this teaching us about ourselves? So whether you read it as historic or you read it as parable and simply a, a story passed down through oral tradition from generation to generation, there are still principles that we need to learn within this text. Now, if you read it as historical, like this actually happened this verse and then chapter two, again, when Satan presents himself, kind of gives you a little problem because where else in scripture after the fall of Lucifer are we told or can we even see that Satan can go back to heaven and make his presence before the throne of God? We don't see that anywhere else. Does that mean that it's not possible and can't happen? No, of course it could. There are things and mysteries that we don't understand. But if you, if you read this as a story, then you don't get hung up on that. The other thing to understand is that in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 and then throughout the book of Job, the, the, the Hebrew for Satan is not a proper noun. It's not a capital S Satan as a name as we understand it today. In fact, the character of Satan, the person of Satan isn't even introduced until the New Testament. The Hebrew here is hasatan, which literally means the one who accuses. Because we have the New Testament and we're introduced to Satan, when we see hasatan in the Old Testament, the translators were like, well, that must be the same person. It could be, but it could also just be this divine being in heaven who's like, hey, God, check this out. Have you seen what's going on over here? We don't know who it is, but I just wanted to like drop that on you today. So in Job chapter one, verse six, we see the, the accuser coming before God and, and God says, hey, have you checked out my servant Job? Like, have you seen my boy? There's nobody else like him. And, and I would tend to like the rest of the book, like God, if you wouldn't have just, if you just would have kept quiet. Like, why did you have to point out Job's righteousness? Why did you have to point out how awesome Job was? Because then the accuser says, well, it's not for nothing, right? Like he, of, of course he's righteous. Of course he loves you. Of course he does all of these things because you protect him and you watch over him. And so God's like, okay, remove it all and see what happens. So Job goes through the first test and he loses his kids and he loses his livestock and he loses, that, he loses all the material, all the, God says, just don't touch him physically. Doesn't sin. Second chapter comes and it's a replay of the first 
Satan says, it's because you've protected him physically. And God says, okay, well, you can touch him physically, just don't kill him. So now there's the boils and he's sitting there scraping. And, and the Bible says that in all of this, Job didn't sin. In all of this, Job remained righteous. He remained upright. He remained blameless. In chapter three, he, he begins his, his cry, cursing the day that he was born, cursing creation. And then his friends chip in and it's like, Job, what'd you do? So I was like, I didn't do anything. They're like, no, we can keep a secret. Just tell us, like, what'd you do? Like, it, it's fine, Job, we're your friends. Tell us what'd you do. And for 23 chapters, it's this back and forth. I didn't do anything. You must've done something. God, tell them I didn't do anything. You must have done something. God, will you speak to me? You must have done something. And it's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then we get to the wisdom poem, and then we get to, to Elihu's response. Elihu is this young guy who's apparently been there the whole time, just hadn't said anything. He's like, I respect the, the wisdom that, that the elders have, and so I'll let you speak, but none of you are making sense. So here's my two cents. What's interesting in the book of Job is the only one who's not rebuked at the end by God is Elihu. So is there something that he said that the others were not saying that caused God to look favorably upon him? Possibly. Then God responds in Job chapter, Job chapter 38, right? This whole lead up kind of gets us to this place and then fi finally we hear from God. Have you ever felt like that in your life? <laughs> like, like there is so much happening. There's so much going on. And God, I've been crying out to you. And God, I've been pouring out my soul to you. God, you won't answer. I'm not hearing anything. I'm not getting anything. Even my friends around me are saying stupid stuff. Like, I don't even know what to do anymore. And then God speaks. Have you ever been there? I'm thankful for those times that God speaks. But when God comes and he speaks to Job, I promise you it was not what Job was expecting. It wasn't what he expected or anticipated. Job chapter 38, here's what God says. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself, not just anyway, but brace yourself. He's saying, put your big boy pants on, Job, because it's about to get real. He says, because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Job has been questioning this whole time. God finally speaks and says, Job, sit down, shut up, put your bib on, because we're about to have some con a conversation. I have questions for you, and I need you to answer them. Now, here are the questions, and for, for the next two chapters, God goes on this rampage. Here's what he says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its dimensions? What supports its foundation and who laid its cornerstone? Who kept the seas at its boundaries? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth? Have you explored the springs from which the seas comes? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course, you know all of this for you were created, or you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? Who created the channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path of the lightning? Can you direct the movement of the stars? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you, make the, can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear? And then he goes in chapter nine talking about the, the wild goats and, and where are the deer born and the wild donkey and the wild ox. You'll notice in chapter 39, he's talked about nature. Now he's talking about the wild things in nature, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, the eagle, all of those things that you can't understand or comprehend. Those are the things that I direct. Now is your turn to answer me, Job, since you know everything. Since you have all of these questions and, and you find it right to come and question me, Job, now that you've got your pants put on like a man, answer me. And here's Job's answer in Job chapter 40. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. How could I ever find the answers? So what will I do? I will cover my mouth with my hand. It's better to put your foot in it, trust me. I will cover my mouth with my hand for I have, I love this verse, I have said too much already and I have nothing more to say. Fellas, have you ever been there? 
Your wife asks you a question, and in your wisdom and experience, you answer, and it wasn't the answer you should have given, and you get that look, and in your heart, you know, I've said too much, and I have nothing more to say. That's where, jo- that's where Job's at. Only it's with God. And then God doesn't leave it at that, but for another two chapters, he talks to him about behemoth, and he talks to him about Leviathan. And, and now I've taken you from creation to the wild things within creation to those things that, that you don't even understand but terrify you. Those are the things that I control, Job. Now, what do you have to say to that? And here's Job's response in chapter 42. I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. It was me. And I was talking about things that I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. He said, I go ahead and go to, go to verse four. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. (laughs) I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Now, if you've read the the rest of the book, if if you've read Job's laments throughout, you read the the position of his heart, and as he's crying out, like, God, justify me. God, I didn't do anything. God, this has come upon me for no reason. Clearly, it's your doing because you were the only one who could. And now God comes and he says, Job, your perspective is all wrong. Your questions were all wrong. Your attitude in your heart was, was all wrong. You think you know so much, then you answer me. And Job's like, I have no idea. I I, I have nothing to say. I was wrong. You were right. And and in my mind, it reminds me of a scene from from Happy Gilmore. You ever seen Happy Gilmore? Where Happy Gilmore goes into Chubbs' office to apologize. And he's like, you were right. I was wrong. Go ahead. Do we have that ready? I'm stupid. You're smart. I was wrong. You were right. You're the best, I'm the worst. Uh, You're very good looking, I'm not attractive. All right, as long as you're willing to admit that now. Are you ready to get down to business and do exactly what I tell you to do? Like in my mind, that's that's how Job presents himself before God. Like, you're the best, I'm the worst. You're smart, I'm dumb. You're good looking, I'm not attractive. Like that's how I read That's how I read 42 verses 1 through 6. Job comes to this place of of repentance. And now here's what's interesting is that Job for for chapters has been crying out saying, God, just speak to me. God, can can I have an audience with you? God, can you explain this to me? God, I don't understand what's going on. And and when you're in that position in your life, because you will be, The only thing for you to do is to wait patiently upon him. Now, what's interesting is it's not that Job asked questions of God. It's that Job questioned God. God doesn't mind your questions. God doesn't mind when you don't understand and you go to him like, God, what is going on here? God, why is this happening? God, I don't understand. That's okay. But when your questions go from questioning your circumstance and your situation to questioning the one who holds your situation, that's where it gets dangerous. And Job was not just tiptoeing that line. He was dancing all over that line. Like, God, you're wrong. God, you have You have wronged me. Now, here's what's interesting is that when God comes and finally does speak to Job, it's not what God says that comforts Job. Because God comes and he puts Job in his place. He says, Job, you're wrong. Job, you're stupid. Job, you know nothing. Job, you are the smallest of of all these things. You don't comprehend. You can't understand my ways. Where were you when I did all of these things? Do you have the answers, Job? No, of course you don't. So who are you to question me? 
And it wasn't what God said that comforted Job. It was simply the fact that God had spoken. That's that's what Job was asking all along. God, I just want an audience. I want to present my case and for you to answer me. God finally does. And in that response, Job is comforted, not because he's been scolded, but because he knows that this God who I had heard about, now I know him personally. So that's what verse five says. And I think it all hinges on verse five there. He says, I I knew about you, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. What comforted Job in his time of trouble? It was the very word of God. Job didn't have the written word of God. You and I do. So how come when we need comfort and we don't understand, we run to all of these other things rather than going to the source of comfort in the first place? The word of God. God comes and he, he comforts Job and he, he changes Job's perspective. Now, here's the question. And, and again, big picture, like why? So, so Why? Right, like, why is this in there? What does this teach us? What does this, what does this show us? What is this challenging us to? And I think, I think you have to, again, contextually understand the time in which this story of Job began. Because up until this point, what were the two biggest events in human history leading up to this? What would everybody have been talking about? The flood. And creation, but, but more in terms of how it affected humanity, them being kicked out of the garden. So up until this point in human history, the two biggest events was Adam and Eve being removed from the garden and God destroying the earth because of its wickedness through the flood. So in their minds, if I do good, God blesses me. And if I do wrong, God punishes me. Now, that in and of itself, theologically, is not wrong. That is just, that is justice, and God is a just God. But what I think the book of Job was really speaking to in that day, in that time, and for us today, is that our view of God cannot just be transactional, but it has to be transformational. And there's this transactional theology going around, and it's been, it's been since Job's day, That if we do good, then we get good. But if we do bad, then we get bad. Now, yes, there are blessings and yes, there are consequences. And we will live out both of those. But if that encompasses the totality of our theology and our view of God, and it's like, well, I don't think that way. Just just look at the TV preachers. If you send a donation of $100 today, you'll get your blessing by the end of the week. It's this transactional view where God is like this this divine cashier, where if I give you the right formula, then you give me what I want in return. And God is, is in this text saying, listen, I am so much bigger than that. But in that day with the fall and with The flood, that was their understanding of how God acted, of how God showed himself in creation. And God's like, no, I'm I'm so much more than that. We have this this transactional theology and, and idea, and Job's friends are saying this throughout, like, you must have done something to to deserve this punishment because God doesn't just does punish good people. God doesn't, God doesn't do this to righteous people. So what, what did you do wrong? Now, here's what's interesting is that Job's friends throughout the book never said anything theologically wrong about God. They didn't. In their understanding, in their, their, their strict orthodox theology about who God was, they didn't say anything that was wrong, but God was showing up saying, but I'm so much bigger. And there are so much more to my character than that. They were obsessed with this idea of justice. And and I would encourage you to go back and read and see how many times that theme and that word comes up. Job chapter chapter 8, verse 6. Here's what Job says. Job says, 
or, or Bildad says to Job, if you are pure and live with integrity, he will surely rise up and restore your happy home. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, you did something wrong to deserve this, but if you do right, then God will restore you. Is that, is that wrong? But then Job chapter 42, he says, I take back everything I said. I sit in dust. I repent. I've been so wrong. Where Job in the beginning had a transactional view of God, now after an experience and an encounter with him personally, it's led him to view God as transformational. Like, God, you're not just about tra uh, the, these transactions between us, but you're about transforming me as a person. So it has to go beyond transactional. The, the second thing that, that I want to point out from, from the book of Job is that God's justice, because he is just. He can't be anything but just. But God's justice does not equate to fairness. We say that we serve a just God, but I think many of us would rather serve a fair God. Give me what, give me what I deserve. Let's make it equal across the board. Everyone gets the same thing. Nobody is blessed more than, than the next person. Nobody is punished more than the next. Like, we're all on the same Playing, that, that's, that's fair. The definition of fairness is without impartiality. But the Bible says that there is divine favor that God has, and he looks upon some with a lot of favor, and he looks upon some with, with other favor. And we all have favor, but how he measures it out, we don't understand. How come the guy with five talents got five talents? How come the one with two got two? How come the one with one got one? We don't know. We are just the servants. It's on the master to give it out. We have this idea of what is fair, and, and to us, fairness and justice are one and the same. But to God, justice, it, the, the definition of justice is to act correctly according to a standard. What we have to be careful of is not to project our standard of justice or fairness on God and expect him to act that way. He is just because the standard that he has is himself. And he always acts in response and correctly according to his character. Now, is that always fair? No, but is it always just? Yes. See, Job and his friends were, were arguing and Job was saying, this isn't fair. There's no way that I deserve this. I haven't done anything. And because the justice and the fairness in his mind were, were contradicting one another, it led him to question if God was just. God, if, if I'm just, which I know that I am because I didn't do anything to deserve this, and we as the readers know because we were given the narrative in the beginning of the book that told us Job was blameless and he didn't sin. And, and this was a, a response to something that was way outside of his control. Like it's easy for us to, to judge in there because we've seen the beginning and the end. It's like when you watch a scary movie and you know that the killer is upstairs and then the, the person is going up the stairs and you're like, no, stupid, don't go up there. Well, you can say that because you know. And we can say things about Job because we know it wasn't, it wasn't his fault. But here he is like, God, are you just or am I just? Because I know I'm just, but if I'm just, then that must mean you're not just. Job chapter 19, he says, he says it's God that has wronged me. It's God who has wronged me, capturing me in his net. God, this is your fault. God, I'm a just man. So that must mean that you're, you're not just. And his friends are like, no, that's crazy. Like who could compare their justice against God's justness? Like, no, that's, that's impossible. No one is righteous above God. Again, speaking rightly of him. Job, Job again, they, they, they said, you know, the wicked get punished. And Job's like, no, they don't. He said, you say the wicked get punished, but I see the wicked being blessed. Job chapter 21. He says, why do the wicked prosper? Growing old and powerful, they live to see their children grow up and settle down. They enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are safe from every fear. God doesn't punish them. What's he saying? He's saying, what I see doesn't make sense because it doesn't, it doesn't mesh with my idea of fairness and justice. God, are you just or am I just? And God says, yes. I am. 
and you are. But don't let your idea of what's fair come between you and your understanding of who God is. And when you see things play out, don't, don't allow that to, to cause something to rise up in your heart to question God. God's justice doesn't equate to fairness. And they're like, listen, his friend's like, you're suffering for a reason, Job. That's what his friends were saying the whole time. There's a reason behind it. There's a reason behind it. There's no such thing as undeserved suffering. The reason the world was flooded is because of the wickedness. The reason Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden is because they ate of the fruit. There's no such thing as undeserved suffering. And really what I think the crux of the book of Job is, is presenting to us is this idea of undeserved suffering. It's not, it's not a book about suffering. There is suffering in it. But if the question is, why do good people suffer? It doesn't answer the question. If the book is, is how do we respond to suffering? We're given some, some principles to learn from in our suffering. But I think the crux of the book of Job is to, to show us that yes, God is just, but God is also gracious. And while he is just, there is also grace that he gives out. Now, what is grace? It's unmerited favor. It's God giving us the things that we don't deserve. Now, if there's, if there's undeserved grace that's given, there must also be undeserved suffering that is experienced. And what the book of Job is saying is, is if you can be okay with accepting from God the things that you don't deserve, the good things that you don't deserve, there are things that God has blessed me with that I don't deserve. But simply by the goodness and the grace of God, he has he has given to me. And if I'm okay receiving the things that I don't deserve from God that I want, then I also have to be okay accepting that in life, sometimes there are things that we go through that we don't do to deserve. And there can't be undeserved grace without undeserved suffering. And for Job and his friends, this wasn't even a thought to them. It was right, wrong, good, bad. God can't act outside of that. Job says, no, I've seen it because there are wicked who are prosperous. And then with me, there are righteous who are suffering. And so it doesn't make sense with my view of justice. God says, you can't let your view of justice, your standard, direct my actions because I don't operate based on your standard. I operate based on my standard. And we see this idea of undeserved suffering and, and undeserved grace given, whether it's to the wicked that Job is talking about or to Job at the end or to his friends at the end. We get to the end and God is gracious to everybody. He says, listen, three friends, I'll offer a sacrifice. Job will pray for you. I'll forgive you. And in the scripture, go back and read it. He says, I will not treat you as you deserve. What is that? That's grace. He's saying the same thing that you guys have been arguing about for the last 30 chapters, I'm going to reveal to you personally. You have spoken incorrectly about me and I could judge you, but rather than judging you, I'll have grace upon you. Job, I'm gonna have grace upon you. Do you deserve for me to bless you twice as much in the second? No. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but I give it. Why? Because I am grace. We see it played out in Job, but for us, we also see it played out in our lives. Because 2,000 years ago, there was some undeserved suffering when Jesus hung on the cross. And he did nothing to deserve it, not because of an act of his own, but, but because we are sinners. He chose to take upon himself the sin of the world, the weight of our sin, the punishment for my sin. He took it upon himself willingly, undeservingly. Why? So that I can experience undeserved grace today. So when we look at the story of Job and what is Job teaching us about God and about God's character, it's this, it's that, that God is omnipotent. God is almighty. God is all powerful. God is so much, so much more than, than we can even begin to comprehend. And just the second that you think you've got God figured out, he'll come to you in a whirlwind and completely change yeah. your, your, 
your thoughts of him or expand upon them. It teaches us that, that yes, God is a just God. God is a righteous God who has to judge unrighteousness. God is a just God, and, and if he promised something, he will be faithful to, to, to fulfill that promise. But God is also full of grace, giving things that aren't deserved, delaying the judgment for those that are in wickedness. Second Peter chapter three said, yes, he's coming back. God's not delaying. He's not, he's not, he's not, he's not being late as you would think, but, but in his grace, he's waiting so that those who don't know him might come to know him because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to have eternal life. So there's this idea of grace and justice that for us don't seem to, to mesh. God, it's not right. God, it's not fair. God, there should be justice. God's like, yes, and one day there will be. But for now, just, just be willing to accept the unmerited favor and the grace that I've placed upon you because you deserve so much worse than you're getting. You deserve so much more. But nevertheless, I will be there with you. I will walk through this with you. And God, at the comfort of your word, I can find peace. God, when I walk through seasons and when I walk through storms and when I walk through trials, as Job did, undeservingly or deservingly, God, may, may my heart not be postured in a way that questions you. But I thank you that I can bring you my questions without questioning you. Because God, you are above all and you know all and your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts and you're so much beyond anything I can think. And so God, if I've been questioning you, God, why are you doing this? God, as Job said, God, you have wronged me. God, I pray that rather than questioning you, I would take comfort in your word. And I think that's what we need to take from Job. God is good, God is just, God is gracious. When we see it, when we don't, when we experience it, or when those that we don't think deserve it are, when we're going through trials, when we're going through blessings, regardless of the season we find ourselves in, we know that God is good, we know that God is just, and we know that God's got it in control. Amen? Amen. Stand with me this morning. Let's pray. That's just the beginning. I could do like 10 parts on Job because there's so much more, but we'll let, we'll let that go. This week, we're, we're in our reading, we're, we're starting with Abraham or Abram as we know him now. We'll get to, to the name change and all that stuff. If you're with us, I would encourage you to continue, continue reading, continue pushing into that. But let's pray this morning. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that, that as your word says, all scripture... Is inspired by you. Lord, whether, whether we read Job as, as historically accurate or we read Job as a story passed down, it doesn't matter because the same God is in it. And it reveals aspects of your character that, that we've heard about, that we know about, but God, that at times don't, don't make sense to us. How can God be a God of grace and a God of justice? God, how can wicked prosper and how can good people go through such difficult times undeservedly so? God, it, it doesn't make sense to us. At the end of the day, it doesn't have to make sense to us. That's what Job said after you spoke to him, like, okay, God, it doesn't make sense to me. You're right, I don't understand it all, but I had heard about you, but now I've seen you and everything has changed. God, I pray that in those moments, in those seasons, that we would have an encounter with you that changes our perspective. God, I pray that you would be so close to us that we would feel your presence and know that, God, as long as you're here, everything's gonna be okay. God, no matter what happens, as long as you're with me, I know that I'll be all right. God, even if it doesn't work out the way that I want it to, God, you're still good. God, we thank you for the unmerited grace and the undeserved grace that we can walk in today. But if we're okay 
welcoming undeserved grace, then we also have to be okay walking through some undeserved suffering. Lord, as we do, I pray that you would keep us focused on you, keep our eyes upon you, keep our hearts right, keep our hearts pure. Lord, thank you for Job and the example given. Thank you, Lord, that we can, we can go through stuff and make it out on the other side. Thank you, Lord, that we can bring our questions to you and you don't despise our questions. Thank you, Lord, that, that so many times in Job, he, he says, if only there was a mediator. There's only somebody that was a go-between between me and God and, and somebody that could speak on my behalf to him and on his behalf to me. Job was crying for a mediator that today we have. Jesus, we thank you that you are that mediator. You came to, to bridge that gap between humanity and the Father. You've brought us together, and even now you are at the right hand interceding for us. This morning, if you're here or you're watching online, and you haven't you haven't encountered that mediator, you haven't encountered God in that way, if you've not given your heart to the Lord, today I wanna to give you the opportunity to do so right where you're at. We'll just ask you to pray this prayer with me, just repeat it. Church, would you help us pray today? Just say, Jesus, thank you so much that I can live with undeserved grace because of the undeserved suffering that you chose to go through. When you put on my sin, you paid the price for my sinfulness. Today, I confess and I repent. I accept you as my savior and as my Lord. Would you, would you come into my heart? Would you change my life from the inside out? Make me brand new and help me to live for you from this day forward for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that prayer. Those whose names even right now are being written into your book of life. Those that have been adopted into your family. Those that now can, can call upon you, Abba, Father. We thank you for the privilege that we have, Jesus. Thank you that you are our mediator, God, as we go from this place today. Whether we are, are riding, we're riding high or we're, we're walking in the, the low valleys, Lord, today I pray that you would encourage us through this story through the life of this man, Job, and we would go knowing that at the end of the day, you've got it all in control. And if you've got it in control, we can trust in you. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, our prayer team is down here. We'd love to be able to minister to you in that way. If there's a need that you have, you want somebody to agree with, uh, you, can, you can come and find prayer for that. If not, be blessed, church. Have a great day. Go Niners. Love you. Here at Dream City Omaha, we're all about three things. Helping people discover Christ, recover identity, or uncover purpose. If you enjoyed today's service, we encourage you to check out our past sermon series as well as our discipleship classes. Give us a subscribe, and we hope that we can help you grow no matter where you are.